Casebook.org, established by Stephen Ryder in 1996, is the world's largest public repository of information about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. With thousands of contemporary press reports, scans of official documents, photographs, and a message board to discuss and debate the crimes and investigation in Victorian London, Casebook.org is the sponsor of RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. And we join the show already in progress. One thing um, I wanted to ask you is when you first announced that you were going to be coming out with a new book on Francis Tumblety, I, I almost expected it to be like a biography. Uh huh. Whereas your book, <laughs> Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, it, it isn't so much a biography as it is like a. Um, a big argument um, uh-huh. of of, uh, of your case. Can you kind of uh, let me know? Because we have, I mean, you could call P- Tim Reardon's Prince of Quacks almost like a biography to where it goes in a linear fashion, chronologically, right. you know. Whereas right. you, you start off some latter bits and then you go back and address his um, origins and, and right. go into a lot of genealogy. So can you kind of tell me like what, what made you decide to fashion your book in the way that you did, as opposed to just a straight flat out biography of Tumblety? Well, the, uh, there it is also slightly a biography when you look at the, uh, the second half, but I start at the beginning of his uh, his life and, and continue, but I actually had uh, two books in mind from the uh, outset, and it looks like there's going to be a third one because we're finding even more stuff. Um, but uh, I promise not to really reveal anything yet with that stuff because we're still in the, the beginning stages. But my plan was two. The first one, when uh, I got involved with the the Francis Tumbley uh, suspect issue. Around 2009, I noticed that um, uh, a lot of the discussion was thinking that Tumbley was either uh, an insignificant suspect in the eyes of Scotland Yard or not even a suspect at all. And I just didn't see that. So that's one of the reasons why I got involved. And so what I I did is I wanted to have the Ripper's Haunts, the first one, more uh, to argue that Scotland Yard did indeed considered him a significant suspect at the peak of the murders, not that he was Jack the Ripper. So I did not push that part. This particular book, what I want to do is I want to focus on, did Francis Tumblety, was he someone that we should take seriously as possibly being Jack the Ripper? And so that's, if you notice, uh, in the book is um, much, uh, quite, quite a, bit, a third larger than the, the Ripper's haunts. And so what I wanted to do is I want to go through and uh, one of the things about being a serial killer, when they talk about, when the experts talk about serial offenders as either both psychopaths or sociopaths, that the childhood development is part of that. And so all the details going along with that. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at both, did Francis Tumbley fit the profile of a serial killer? Did he fit the profile of Jack the Ripper? And so it required me to go through all of this. And so I wanted to 
to go through every bit of it, especially when you look at previous works like Tim's. Uh, if you notice, he was trying to focus just on the history of Tumbley, but I did know and he knew that uh, he did not consider Tumbley a significant suspect. And so you can kind of see that that theme in his book. So uh, Reardon's got a phenomenal ability to, to have discovered uh, much stuff in his history. And so I definitely did the same thing, but I wanted to sh uh, kind of reveal much more to see. I saw different patterns, especially with the new material, with the 900 new pages of uh, sworn testimony that was basically a uh, personality profile of tumbling in his last 20 years. It couldn't, it conformed to what uh, I saw in Tumbley's history. So I wanted to put that together. And so that was the, the Jack the Ripper or purpose of the doc, you know, the, the book that I just wrote. Um, we uh, discuss a lot of this on our last uh, podcast we did with you, The Hidden Truth. But just for the uh, sake of, of this show, why don't you go through some of what you believe makes Tumble T fit the profile of a certain type of serial killer and then how that equates to him fitting the perpetrator of the uh, Whitechapel murders. Okay. Uh, one of the things I always start with is that if Jack the Ripper was a sadosexual serial killer like a Ted Bundy or a John Wayne Gacy... Uh, then Francis Tumbley is not your man. Uh, but what I looked at was that Tumbley had this bitter hatred of women, and that's one of the things that I focused upon in the Ripper's Haunts. And so there were two experts that really don't have a dog in the fight, meaning they're not Ripperologists, they don't have a, a favorite suspect like myself, or others that have um, not even a suspect Ripperologist, but a Ripperologist that has already uh, uh, published on the material, I looked at uh, a forensic pathologist, Dr. William Eckert, and his was, I think, in the 1980s, but he did not see, uh, he saw a non-sadistic uh, serial killer, and because of uh, the lack of sexual assault and also post-mortem mutilation. So uh, sadistic would be while they're alive, uh, enjoying the pain and the suffering of that your victim, this was post-mortem. And then forensic scientist and criminal profile, profiler, Dr. Brent Turvey, he saw the same thing and even uh, referenced Dr. Eckert about the uh, not seeing sadosexual uh, in the behavior. But he saw anger retaliatory, and there are multiple kinds of anger retaliatory Turvey talks about, but this one specifically is the uh, hatred of women as in, uh, attack what makes a woman a woman like the womb and, and the breasts and then he saw and so then he saw another one it was uh, what he referred to as reassurance oriented behavior and what he saw in in the victims or what he read on the victims is uh, a lack of confidence uh, deep personal inadequacies and what uh, and you and I had discussed this in the past too about uh, the the display of the uh, the victims and uh, displaying and to humiliate post-mortem humiliate humiliation of a woman uh, uh, of the victim is out itself and so what I saw with display especially the last two victims you know some some uh, experts don't accept that Mary Kelly 
was let's see uh, uh, one of the ripper victims but the previous uh, one as well but uh, they both have they look to me like the anatomical venus which was you know part of the uh, the wax museums at the time but it was a kind of seductive woman on a bed uh, on her back and uh, and having her disemboweled and having the parts to the side quite a display looking um quite a display and then also a need to instill fears and then the big thing too was wanting trophies and so of course we know with our victims we had the uh, the kidney uh, uh, the heart and the uterus twice and then also that ring and then so those trophies that kind of Dr. Turvey considered that what he saw that really fits Francis Tumbley to a T both of those and then so that was my point was as we, we can see that especially with the um, the, the Ripper's Haunts, I, I focused a lot on his uh, hatred of women and then the new material we found, even with the, the Norris testimony showing how much he hated women, especially fallen women. And uh, that was a pattern with a number of, of the uh, sworn testimonies, his hatred of women, even as uh, both of his uh, his attorneys, Baltimore attorneys, both made comments about uh, how much uh, he hated women, especially that Frank Widener, uh, that attorney, saw in one year before uh, Francis Tumbley died, when a woman would come into his office, Tumbley would put that newspaper over his face. And at one point, Widener had to leave the room. Apparently, there was one telephone in the entire building that he had to use. And so he left. uh, There was a uh, one of uh, a woman in the room too with Tumblety, and when he came back from his phone call, that woman was not in the room, and he asked why. She said that uh, that man scares me, basically that she, he was so threatening. Here, Tumblety was, uh, you know, in his 70s at the time, so to me, it just fit the pattern of this hatred of women, especially this anger retaliatory. So that uh, that was uh, kind of where. Uh, the Ripper's Haunts was going with. And so then what I wanted to find out was, especially when we found out that uh, Tumblety had um, what they called a hermaphroditic condition and uh, a, a numerous accounts, even the the undertaker who looked at his body saw that he had uh, a, you know, like a micro penis the size of his thumb or something that uh, he had an intersex condition, whether it would be pure hermaphroditic as in both male and female parts or something he was definitely, he could not, you know, he had a sexual dysfunction for sure. And then so that, not that hermaphrodites or people that are in intersex conditions would be uh, uh, prone to being serial killers, but what that would do is, especially in his Catholic world, that would have been in the uh, early 1880s and mid-1880s, that definitely would focus on his lack of confidence and deep personal inadequacies right from a younger kid, even in his adolescence world. And what also is that Tumblety made it to the United States when he was 17. So he was raised actually in Ireland during, right during the potato famine. So that life back there on that farm and the farm community is what got hit the worst. That must have been quite a dramatic situation. And so... And, and so then we have reports of when he, when he came over that he started, he was a loner even at the beginning. So fitting 
some other uh, characteristics of serial killers is uh, both the uh, antisocial personality disorder and also narcissistic personality disorder. And that's one of the things that we see uh, with Tumblety is that he never had a buddy pal friend with the exception of young men in his life that he could dominate. So he never had a kind of like a normal relationship. And that's one of the things that when we look at time and time again, we see any kind of uh, accounts of Tumblety, he was always on his own, especially that last 20 years. And when he was with, let's say, his uh, New Orleans attorney, all he wanted to t do is have his New Orleans attorney read his autobiography, The Good Parts, uh, over and over to him. And uh, so it to me, it fit this uh, narcissist and also especially with his lack of remorse uh, one account in New Orleans when he had a young young man that he asked to be his his basically a servant that he would pay him uh, the uh, money each month and um, and the first month Tumbley was at night in the streets and he got nailed with a, a lead pipe and he had a big uh, wound on his head and so this young man uh, took care of him and uh, as and even fed him his own food and then the attorney asked this young man did he uh, did Tumblety ever pay you and he said no but he promised that he would put him in his his will and so uh, he actually had a a a third will uh, being drafted at the time in New Orleans but after month four he vanished from New Orleans didn't give the boy a dime so you could see him taking advantage of people all of his life. And so I, to me, it, it showed lack of remorse. And so uh, my point in this book is uh, he, he may not have been Jack the Ripper, but it, um, the pattern fits much closer than people ever thought. You always hear about serial killers with um, mother complexes or, you know, strange relationships with their uh, female siblings or their mothers or something like that. And, and, and I, one of the parts of your book I really enjoyed was the genealogy of the Tumblety family. Oh, yeah. And uh, it seems that uh, his father is kind of a mystery. He's on Tumblety. Francis Tumblety is on the ship's manifest is coming over from Ireland with his mother and I believe his family that he uh, actually lived with in Rochester in the in the house comprised of a few sisters as well, right? Uh, yes, and, and nieces after a while, but yes. Uh, well, the when he was first there, it was his mother, and um, and there is hints that his father was there. And also, when uh, Tim Reardon found that the first person on that passenger list was a James Tumulty uh, and then the age was wrong but when you looked at other spots on that same list it went, went through the age appropriate so the oldest was at the first and then it went down to the youngest so that was strange and so um, I have a, a feeling that that was actually his father so uh, just because of the positioning and also looking through tons and tons of material you i just can't find him i find his uh brother uh james or patrick coming three years later and you know i find uh, the fitzsimmons is coming over 
earlier than this, and then, uh, but I don't find his father. But we know his father was there because uh, I think it was uh, he died in 1851, and he's buried there. Yes. Um, and wasn't it that initially it was believed that maybe the James referred to on the passenger list what was J- Patrick James, his brother, because right. of the age, or I'm just yes, going off my of memory. And right, and then but when you look at later, now he died in the 1850s as well. But when you look at uh, his um, uh, genealogical material, 1855 census, it shows that he came a couple years afterwards. So uh, I don't think that that was could have been him. I mean, the idea was, which is a true story, which is true with Catholics. Me being raised in a Catholic family, many times you. Uh, you are you're the you, the name that you're spoken with is your middle name. So like, like my uh, my brother, uh, his name is Frank Dean Hawley. His real name is Frank, but we've always called him Dean. I didn't even know his first name was Frank for the longest time. And then uh, and also one of Francis's sisters is uh, referred to as by her middle name. So and then uh, so in this case. That's why one of the reasons why they were thinking that maybe it was Patrick, not James. They're just kind of mixing the names. But I think the evidence shows that uh, that it was just a uh, an incorrect writing of the date or the age of the person. Mm-hmm. I guess my point was kind of that. I mean, like you had said, his father died only after um, Tumblety had been in the United States for like a few years. Right. Um, and he continued to live with his mother and there's and it, it seems like he was close to most of his immediate uh, siblings I mean his yes um, he might have had problems with some nieces later on like he cut one out of the will uh, later yeah. on um, but there it's unfortunate that we don't have really I mean, there's no evidence that he had any problems with his mother um, that I right. know of, and or or his uh, his sisters or anything like that. Right. So so this hatred of women, when it comes to serial killer behavior, typically is you know stems from a dominating relationship with a, his uh, the mother, which it, there's it doesn't seem like uh, that was the case at Tumblety. Or strange relationships with his sisters, you know, some right. kind of weird female dynamic going on. Whereas in Tumblety's case, he had a, he had brothers also, so he wasn't the only boy uh, in, in a group of uh, sisters and with a dominating mother, for example. Right. So, um, so what what are your thoughts on how uh, it seems that there? Uh, there's a, a lack of any conflict between himself and his uh, female members of his family. Well, it to me what the especially with the latest evidence shows there was a a, a neighbor, um, uh, Eleanor uh, Elsheimer. She said that Francis Tumblety in the um, uh, mid 1890s came to visit. Uh, her mother, the father had passed away and the mother was in a wheelchair and it was right about the time where he was transitioning from wearing, you know, a gaudy, expensive clothing to being a tramp because he came, well, he, actually he came in in a, in a fur coat 
that freaked out the neighbors. And the neighbors almost called the police on him. But he was just coming in to visit these old neighbors. And when he came in, she said that she had uh, uh, like a dress that uh, any, you know, was very kind of uh, would 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 catch the eye of any man. So however that meant that she probably looked uh, seductive or and not on purpose, but that's what she was wearing. And when he came in, he completely ignored her. And that was the shock for her. But. Uh, really spoke uh, when met with the mother had a great conversation with the mother so that kind of matched what I was saying earlier that he did not hate just all women he hated women that were seductive uh, and that would could lure young men away from their intended lovers which would be older men and uh, and when you look at some of the reports uh, that talk about even his personal letters to uh, uh, Henry Hall Cain, he considered women the curse of the land. And that's why, and he was a devout Catholic, uh, a bunch of reports that he would be in uh, church every Sunday. But one of the things back then, I what I pointed out was that the, uh, the curse of the land, especially in uh, the Christian community, would be the... Um, uh, the um, Eating of the uh, the fruit in the Garden of Eden uh, brought the curse of the land, and there, back then there were many um, of Catholic leaders that believed it was Eve's fault because Eve deceived Adam, and so uh, and then and so I kind of in the book I reported some of those things, and so and then Tumbley, one person said that Tumbley thought that the women were the curse of the land, and that but then. You know, of course, even uh, uh, the young men that he was always with, he would always kind of go on a rant about women, stay away from women, uh, and then uh, uh, complaining that uh, they're basically they're the ruination of the world. And so, but he, when he would complain to these young men, these young men are the, the, the his interest. And so when he was always walking these these slums in the throughout the evenings. He would be in the same spot as the prostitutes, and he would be seeing these young men getting lured by this. Richard Norris said that one time he 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 brought Francis Tumbledy to that uh, basically that brothel, and uh, and so Tumbledy was when found out was quite upset. But uh, Norris said that he had to get some money from somebody, so he was sitting there. So the girl, so he told some of the girls about Tumbledy and Tumbledy. Uh, kind of uh, yelled at him for that, but he was telling Norris that uh, anybody that uh, is attracted to that kind of person, he doesn't want to speak with either, as in males. So my point is, the, it looks like the the data shows or the evidence shows that his hatred was for women that could lure young men away, and then and the 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 uh, the centerpiece would that be would be prostitutes, because that's. So that's what his hatred was for. Why specifically destitute, sick, poor, East End prostitutes, do you think? I mean, you when you look at a victim like Annie Chapman, I wouldn't necessarily... I mean, no one in their right mind would, uh, would consider her a threat necessarily of, uh, to, of luring away... Mm -hmm. young men i mean she was 
a prostitute out of you know sheer desperation due to her alcoholism why would you expect he would target um those prostitutes as opposed to i mean maybe even west end prostitutes or you know uh some uh, a little higher class of prostitutes is it simply just because of their vulnerability I would say a couple things. One is uh, one of the things before I talk about that is that one of the other things I saw was uh, prior to 1880, Tumbley full of energy. He had one one agenda that was money making. So you could see that everywhere he goes, it was making money, and he could make money hand over fist. But it was around 1880 that when even uh, Reardon talks about this, others that it's almost that he kind of vanishes. One of the reasons he vanishes is because he no longer uh, has any advertising advertisements, and the only time we see him is when he gets in trouble, when he's in the slums and he gets caught um, with, uh, you know, like uh, for like uh, sodomy or something to that nature, like in Toronto. So, uh, there was a change of behavior with Tumblety right at that time, and it was actually at the same time as when he started visiting Hot Springs, Arkansas, right around 1880. And he would do it yearly, but it's not just that. It was Saratoga, Saratoga Springs, and Tumbley talks about that in his autobiographies. And he talks about the European uh, uh, hydrotherapies. And so he claimed that he had, uh, it was because of uh, rheum- rheumatism. And even uh, uh, Simon Wood talks about, you know, that was a euphemism back then for syphilis. And one of the things that we see that there, uh, the, um, the undertaker, said that he had these sores. One sore was under his mustache, and his mustache popped right off. He had a sore in his mouth, and so it was almost, it had the signs of tertiary syphilis. And so he may or may not have had that. If it was, that would be one of the reasons why he was feeling, you know, this change of behavior. But even if it wasn't, right in uh, January of 1888 is when he told that Toronto reporter in the Toronto Globe, that he was in constant dread of sudden death because of kidney and heart disease. So, and then we have reports of him passing out right on the on the street. Uh, the attorney uh, Simpson talks about him being passed out in the street and passing out into into his office as well. So he was uh, always telling people. Even the the judge in um, Hot Springs talks about that uh, said that you know he could die today or he could die tomorrow. Or he could die, or he could outlive you. That's kind of how he would talk, and that he was concerned about this. And so, it looks like that he was. To me, uh, there was this either it's more of a narcissistic switch that goes off. He, the reason why, and the question is, is you know most serial killers are not in their fifties when they're killing. But if Tumbley was the killer, that actually fits better because. The reason why he's doing it is because of the uh, of his his life changing constant dread of feeling like he's going to die any moment. And if you look at those organs that were taken, so we know Tumbledy already had this interest in the the womb, and then we have the uterus, and then the kidney and heart were were taken, and then these this is what his diseases were. So to me, the pattern would be. That's one in 1888 is when he decided to do it. Or we actually have some stuff about some other years, but that'll be later discussion. But like with this one that we know of with Jack the Ripper, 
if Tumbley did it, it would have been uh, he he finally uh, flipped. And so then what you see is a pattern when he comes back from the uh, oh, and your question was is right there. Even back then, everybody knew that those were that they were the forgotten population on the east end. And his and if you watch even in the uh, in Toronto and also in Baltimore in the uh, 1870s, 1880s, he had a thing. Oh, even in 1861, they reported that he had a thing for going into the slums. So he had this. Uh, he always wanted to be in the slums, and, and that's what he for the last uh, you know 15 years of his life. In the evenings, he would walk the streets in the slums, and so that's where he was. So he was never in the. He would never hang out in the evening in the West End. He would hang out in the evening in the slums, and that was the East End. So that's where he was and so it could be just that's because that's where he was or it also could be that some people would say that the reason why they selected those victims is because they they would not be detected or they would not there would be no concern and so if Tumbley really was looking for those organs as in harvesting those organs for whatever reason that that would be where he'd start but I could say it's because that's where he was was all every evening. That was the place. And then when he came back, after he had his last autobiography of 1893, that's when he just got rid of all of his good clothing. And he just wore these, uh, the he looked like a tramp even in the daytime. But in the evenings, uh, he would be in the slums every evening every city he went to. So that was, uh, and then uh, that Eleanor uh, Elsheimer from Rochester said that one evening in the city of Rochester, he noticed Francis Tumble. she noticed Francis Tumbley in this dark area, kind of like an alley uh, doorway entrance. And uh, when she walked by, he just had his back to the wall, his hands to the, to the wall and just silent. Like uh, she, he didn't think that she saw him. So he acted so strangely in that. So his personality changed quite a bit, and and so much, almost like he was reliving the the Whitechapel uh, district. That's um, a long answer, but did that answer it? Yeah, that's fine, and that kind of leads us into one of our listener questions from Joe Chudy. Um, and he writes in. Mike, you've shown in your book that Tumble T had resentments towards streetwalkers, and you've shown how he verbally expressed his views about the manner in which they should be harmed. Your book also revealed how Tumble T was spotted hiding at night in an alley, and how witnesses testified about the man's nocturnal habit of prowling around on dark streets. The man certainly could have continued performing these strange habits in Whitechapel in 1888 while clinging to his hatred against streetwalkers. And, of course, you've shown in your book that Tumble T stored knives, and he even made a verbal threat with a knife to Mr. Norris. Tumble T met many of the requirements that were necessary to have been considered a person of interest in the Whitechapel murders. But there is still one other important point that needs to be addressed, and Joe's question is... Do you think that Tumble T was surgically knowledgeable enough to have committed the Whitechapel murders? This is a question that wasn't touched upon in the Little Child letter. Uh, the answer is actually yes, for a number of reasons. 
the uh, now and, and and that's one good point we always hear about it's not necessarily that he had anatomical skill to match the the victims of Jack the Ripper but anatomical knowledge and one of the things though is what I, I focus on is that some uh, in the uh, talk when they refer to Francis Tumbley they call Tumbley a Thompsonian and the reason for that is because back in the early 1800s there was a uh, Thompsonian uh, botanical doctor who was actually Samuel Thompson he started a complete discipline of this botanical uh, discipline uh, medical uh, discipline and what happened was is that particular person was actually not considered a quack. I mean, it was a, a program the rural communities liked it a lot, uh, really uh, preferred it more, but it had some credibility even amongst physicians back then was the Samuel Thompson. And indeed, Francis Tumbley, if you look in his autobiographies, those poems that he uses are Thompsonian poems. So, so that's why some have said that he was a Thompsonian. So Thompsonians don't like the knife. They would never use the knife. So they, there is no evidence that he, he, he hated the knife. Why would he do this? But when you look closer at Samuel Thompson, the central herb that they used was called lobelia. And uh, that right there is like half the book. And Tumbley never mentions lobelia at all. And does it use that? Uh, but so what Tumbley was actually saying that he was was an Indian herb doctor, and then there was an actually there were was an Indian herb doctor before uh, Samuel Thompson, and what they did is they uh, pretended that they got the uh, ex expertise from the native local Native Americans, and that but the difference was that they would do the advertising that they could cure all, and uh, and then they would make money hand over fist, and that's what Tumbley was doing. So. And then he learned it from R.J. Lyons, uh, Rudolph Lyons, who was that Indian herb doctor that came through Rochester around 1850. So you could see, and also uh, all the techniques of advertising and uh, pushing. So by, by 1856, we see Francis Tumbley for the first time opened up a, an office in London, Ontario, starting this business. And by the way, that was the first time that he got in trouble for uh, poor... Uh, um, Poor, uh, how it, uh, one of his female patrons, patients that he uh, was fined five pounds for treating her poorly. But in this case, that when you look at uh, the uh, Tumbledee's autobiography, he focuses on a number of things. One is that uh, his problem is, is he wants, uh, if you look at like, let's say the Civil War, when he tried to, uh, he claimed that he offered his surgical uh, expertise to General McClellan. So he wanted to be part of his surgical team, yet uh, he didn't have any medical diploma. So one of the things that he did was he, what you do is you do an illustrated lecture, and uh, these surgeons back then always did uh, illustrated lectures to show their expertise. And so that's what uh, that Colonel Dunham was discussing, that he, was, he and all, all these other um, military officers the eyes and ears of the general were invited to watch this, you know, the uh, illustrated lecture that that's where the uterus collection came from. But then we see that the month or so before that, when Tumbley was still in New York City, he had all these images over his office of basically uh, a 
a New York City reporter was uh, complaining about that because he had so many images of anatomical specimens, uh, pictures. So that was uh, 1861, both those events. And in 1863, we see that uh, there's a report when he was in Buffalo, New York, uh, when uh, in August uh, of uh, 1863, that he was giving illustrated lectures with thespian emphasis. So when uh, in the and so then in his autobiography, you see that he uh, uh, under a uh, a title called Credentials that he claimed that he, when he was in France, the direct uh, director of the Ambulatory of Britain, Brittany, gave him credentials for, uh, you know, basic, uh, you know, uh, helping him in the Franco-Russian War. So this idea that he has this, uh, to, if you're going to go in front of a general, you better have some kind of anatomical knowledge, especially if you're going to do illustrated lectures. And especially, he was already rich by then, especially you would better have some surgical knives too if you're going to claim that you're going to help in surgery. Well, so, uh, of course, uh, Richard Norris talks about when, uh, in 1881 when Tumbley showed him his collection of surgical knives. And then uh, then what happened is, is uh, <clears throat> two more points with that is, one is if you look at his autobiography, he actually discussed his um, he, uh, who he he believed that he was the disciple of a man named Abernathy. So he didn't say he was a disciple of R.J. Lyons, an Indian herb doctor. As a matter of fact, from the 1866 autobiography, there were over 20 uh, references to Indian herb doctor. In the 1872 autobiography, he took every single one of those references out. So even in his title in the 1866 said Indian herb doctor, and he took it out completely. So he was trying to get away from this persona of an Indian herb doctor. And the persona that he was pushing was is what he, he believed he was the disciple of, Abernathy. And that John Abernathy was an English surgeon. And what he was pushing, this Abernathy was pushing back then, was cutting as the last recourse. He says, absolutely, you're a surgeon, and you need it especially, let's say, during time of war or something. But instead of just start cutting things immediately, Abernathy would discuss that there's, you know, use medicine first. Uh, try to uh, take care of them before you're going to use a knife because back then, with no antibiotics, chances are you're going to die anyway. So, uh, so, but he was an English surgeon. So here's Tumbley's autobiography saying that he was a disciple of an English surgeon. So then... If that's true, then these these latest uh, documents that we found uh, that there was a uh, in his last days in St. John's Hospital was a doctor J. H. Ziegler. That man he was actually employed as a nurse there, but he was a doctor, a medical doctor. So he was with Tumbledy every night for thirty about uh, from May second to May twenty eighth. And what he said was that uh, they asked him about Tumbledy, and one of the things about did he have any medical knowledge, and, and Ziegler said that he indeed had medical knowledge, and that Tumbledy would ask him about surgery, especially amputation, and how to tie up the arteries and sewing it in the skin. So, uh, and so then Tumbledy would talk to him about ways to uh, open up an office and other things. But throughout Tumbledy's life, you see that there's this connection with this. And when 
when you read the autobiography, his persona, he wants to be considered kind of a surgeon on steroids that is kind of the combination. So his discipline is more than just surgery. Yet, uh, so you can see right from the beginning that uh, he had this connection with surgery. So as in not a lot of experience, so uh, but uh, anatomical skill probably would be questionable, but anatomical knowledge for sure. I want to jump into his arrest for suspicion of being the Whitechapel murderer and then his later gross indecency arrest. Right. Your book kind of um, suggests that he might have been arrested for suspicion of being the Whitechapel murderer shortly after the double event. Yes. And uh, that would make sense, given that when he gave the interview later on, after he came back to New York, he said that he visited uh, one of the sites um, in Whitechapel, mm-hmm. which would put him at the Burner Street scene. Okay. Uh, I would think. Uh, wearing the American slouch hat. Right. Yeah. So let me, uh, and you can go through this, but uh, there's a lot of like pretty interesting things that are going on at this time. Um, it seems that when he was first arrested for suspicion, he gave a fake name to the police. Uh, isn't that right? And uh, I, I would say uh, that we can't uh, uh, discount that because they well, that one report says that his correct name was in those letters. So I could see him trying to say a fake name for sure, especially when he used aliases as well. Right. And it also said uh, in the press reports, uh, they established his identity by, by letters. And then they also say uh, the doctor's identity was for a time concealed after his arrest. But the police who took the liberty of hunting up his lodgings and ransacking his private effects discovered easily who he was. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems that when he was nabbed, like you you would think like around October 1st or so. Right. He lied about his identity and, and it took the police a while to establish his identity. Now, whether he gave them the name Cumblety with a K or whether he gave the name Maurice Fitzsimmons or something like that, it's not known, but what are your ideas on that? That that when he was arrested for suspicion, he became uh, difficult with the police, even goes to as fact as trying to conceal his identity. Anytime he was arrested, he showed off. Remember, he had uh, the report was that he had his cash in one pocket and his jewelry in the other pocket, never to be mixed. So that was kind of an interesting thing. And so he did, did that all the time just to show that he was kind of a, a higher status person. But apparently that there were these letters. Now, were, did the letters, uh, one of the two things that they att- tried to attempt to establish back then was that uh, who, who you are and what your residence is. So the fact that uh, the, that uh, report from the, uh, the Boston uh, Herald uh, London correspondent that uh, they went and ransacked his room, that uh, it does make sense. So then 
I don't think the, he would have used the word Cumbledy, K with a K. I believe that what the pro, that right there was when E. Tracy Grease was was um, getting the information uh, when they uh, he found a, that a uh, an American uh, a New Yorker named Cumbledy. Uh, notice that, that that was the as it stated that, that was the correct name. I think the person that he, the information he received that from was not the arresting officer, but someone in Scotland Yard uh, that E. Tracy Greaves said on two separate occasions during the 1888 that he had a Scotland Yard informant. That person just read the report, and I'm and I'm convinced it was he just mixed the word letter K and T up. Uh-huh. So that's the only time we ever see that cumbledy word. And the the Fitzsimmons, the Maurice Fitzsimmons, that's interesting because that was the family, the family of uh, the descendants of you know Tumbledy's family that live in Bath, that uh, they made the comment about that. I'm I'm convinced that that right there was not what he used for the police. That was that the family members would use because Fitzsimmons was part of the family. That that name. And then uh, that was uh, Margaret, or his sister Margaret's uh, husband, Michael Fitzsimmons. So he used the Fitzsimmons name for that. So whatever alias, was it Smith again, Sullivan, whoever you used. So, or he, uh, uh, it didn't work well because, of course, they eventually found out. And But you're right. So even uh, when you look at the Albert Chambers incident where that, uh, that American who was bragging that wore the American slouch hat, just the day after the double event murder, that just screams of Tumbledy, and it kind of fits where the uh, once you know once you have a person and I've identified the name, the first thing you would do is to see do we have any record of this guy in our own record, and so you would go to you know cable headquarters, Scotland Yard, to see. This is where uh, one of the things that I push is that the the uh, that that large dossier was not in special branch that large dossier was in CID so he had to have had a file on CID in CID anyway because when he got in got in trouble with uh, the young man in the 1870s that was had nothing to do with Fanian uh, stuff so he had a file on him already and when you cable you know CID the you wouldn't be going into the special branch files to find out maybe you would but in this case uh, they found out that in there, and this is what Littlechild stated, that when he said a fact on record, that was not about Fanny and stuff. Tumbledy was notorious in the United States for being in trouble for sodomy, for uh, uh, indecent um, assault on young men. He was, And we know that in, in London, that's what he got in trouble for. So... And also because of his experience in Liverpool, where uh, one of his uh, his patrons uh, died, uh, patients died, so that was part of uh, the record. They had nothing to do with nothing to do with um, any of the uh, dynamiters or any of the Fanian situation. So he had this CID report. So once they realized he was an American doctor, and that was uh, suggested that that would. Uh, Jack Ripper just might be because of the, like the Americanisms in the some of the letters, and also that he was a doctor and that uh, that he had this bitter hatred of women, and who and we don't know exactly uh, that fact on record what it said. Did it say anything about hatred of women with prostitutes? When we know that he did uh, tell people that he hated prostitutes, but in uh, in this case. 
that that would have red flagged it. Not that they would say, well, that's Jack Ripper. I'm convinced 100%, so let's ignore everybody else. Well, that would now put him at a, a priority. So we don't have anything. I mean, he's denying anything. So if we take him to court right now, we would lose the, the court battle in, in a uh, uh, case. So what they did was they released him immediately. And so then as they were investigating him, that's when uh, they would would have tried to keep an eye on him as well if they were interest, interested in him in this important case. And so in the November and December uh, Central Criminal Court calendar records, we see that he was entered into custody on November 7th. So that means he had to have been arrested within 24 hours. And since they already, uh, so basically they did a slight investigation on the gross indecency. They had those young men ready to go so they arrested him uh, probably that morning, but it was it has to have been within 24 hours of that entering into custody that you have seen the magistrate to go in there. And that, that remand hearing would be, would you know, are we going to keep him in jail or allow bail? And clearly uh, the next November 14th, the, uh, when they had the, uh, the committal hearing where the case would be even more solid, the magistrate allowed bail. So here it is. He, so that he clearly would have, the same person would have allowed bail at the remand hearing, especially when we have three Scotland Yard officials stating that he was a suspect after the Kelly murder. And if he was in jail during the Kelly murder, and if these police officers were convinced that Mary Kelly was a ripper victim, Somebody would have said that, but nobody did. So it's even though we don't have evidence that uh, he was in jail or not, uh, you know, absence of evidence is not evidence for absence. So as in he, he was not in jail. So he, to me, the evidence shows that he was clearly uh, out of jail at uh, by you know a, with around that November seventh. Right. But then November fourteenth, then that that's when that couple of days he posted bail November sixteenth. And even in the interview with Tumbley in January 1889, they asked, how long were you in jail? And he basically said, a couple of days. So uh, so then he was released on that November 16th. But his uh, to go in, you know, for, uh, it was basically to be committed to Central Criminal Court. And so November 19th was his grand jury hearing. And November 19th is when, uh, they returned a true bill, which means the jurors believe there was enough evidence to convict him for gross indecency, which would be a few years in prison. And, and so here, this right here was when the time that Tumbley was convinced that he was going to jail. So by November, on November 24th, the Havre left port, or I mean the La Bretagne left port in Havre on noon, the, November 24th. And so there were basically three ways to get to to the um, uh, Simon Wood talks about the the ways to get to uh, the uh, Havre uh, transiting. One is from Liverpool; you can go directly to Havre. One is directly from London uh, through the Thames; you can get to Havre. Or what the uh, uh, some of the during the uh, Fanian situation, like in 1883, 1884, they would they would sneak off to um, Folkestone Harbor, cross into Boulogne, and then uh, take a train to Havre. 
And then so in that case, here we have uh, Chief Inspector Littlechild didn't say got the Havre. He, he, he didn't, uh, Littlechild didn't know about that. What he saw was is when he, he reported that he was uh, first seen in Boulogne and then shortly left thereafter, it was basically uh, he had knowledge of that's the, the particular route that he took. And so, so that was uh, right after November 19th. Now, November 20th is that Tumbley's lawyer um, was in front of uh, Bakhtin's, was in front of the, uh, the judge. And so um, by uh, then it was November 10th, they had assigned the, uh, the, uh, the court case. November, I'm sorry, December 10th was that. So if, if uh, the Scotland Yard was merely interested in Tumbley because of the gross indecency case, he was legally bailed from November 16th till December 10th. So there would be no reason for any Scotland Yard official to be seeking him out because he's, he's legally free of bail. Yet, in the New York world, the December uh, 2 New York world, uh, a December one report of the uh, the person that uh, report, the origin source was London, so it was E. Tracy Greaves, the New York World's uh, London correspondent, had a report that he was last seen in Havre, and it's taken for granted that he's on his way to New York. Well, when that report came out that day, he pulled in, then he pulls up, and then uh, here's two two New York City detectives. And one report has a Scotland Yard detective waiting for him right at, at the uh, La Britannia. To, and so that's when Superintendent Burns, a New York City chief de- detective, said that he had known that Tumbley was on his way to New York a week ago, which was around uh, the same time that the ship left on November 24th. So Scotland Yard knew that Tumbley was on his way. November 24th, yet the public didn't know until E. Tracy Greaves wrote his report December 2nd. There was no report at all about Tumbley sneaking out of the country, yet Burns knew a week ago, and he had two detectives waiting for him at, right at the, you know, when he did, Tumbley disembarked. So you could see Scotland Yard, for some reason, knew that he was in France, and here is Chief Inspector Littlechild saying that he was first seen in Boulogne and shortly left thereafter. Well, it's um, so if if uh, which is December 10th is when Tumbley was a no-show at Central Criminal Court. So they issued a warrant December 10th for the gross indecency. Yet he's already in New York. So you know, so for some reason Scotland Yard knew that Tumbley had made it to Boulogne. Well, if you think about it, you take a train to Boulogne, the, uh, noon on the 24th is when the La Bretagne left port. Tumbley had to have been in Boulogne on the 23rd to get there so he could make that ship. So here it is, the 19th was the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the true bill was issued, and then here it is, the 23rd is in Boulogne. So in that time, you could see that Scotland Yard was trying to keep an eye on him as they were if uh, if he was indeed of interest of something. And it could not have been just a gross indecency thing if they're following him around. So, and and here's 
Chief Inspector Littlechild saying it was, you know, he was amongst the suspects of the Jack the Ripper case. So they had that interest of following him. So the interesting thing, though, is if you look at Littlechild, uh, his his letter, anything pre-Balone is he nails it exactly. Not only does he nail the facts exactly, he gives two facts that nobody, no public knew outside of Scotland Yard until the 1990s. One was that he was charged, uh, he was charged in the Mar- Marlboro Street Station uh, courts. And the other was that um, when they talked about um, in the paper about the Maiden Tribute Act or the, uh, you know, the Babylon case, that right there, um, Littlechild knew that it was because of these unnatural offenses, which is basically male-on-male uh, male, homosexual activity. And, tum- and Littlechild talks about his contrary sexual instincts. But uh, there's no, pa- no nowhere in the paper that talks about that uh, in this case. And one of the reasons is because that maiden tribute uh, of modern Babylon was actually for maidens. So in July 1885, remember the Pall Mall Gazette wrote those 12 articles on child prostitution that kind of pushed this, and that that if you look at the articles, not about nine, over 90 times they talk about girls. Well, it's a maiden thing. 24 times they say the word maiden. They don't ever say boys, and only one time they make a comment about young men. Then there was this amendment, amendment act of 1885 that added the gross indecency uh, with Labashure that did that. So if you looked at the reports, it automatically assumes that he was uh, charged for young girls or maidens. And as a matter of fact, uh, Stuart Evans has a report that I put in the book. I, I don't have it in front of me, but that in New York City, these girls were afraid. They were afraid uh, uh, that Tumbledy was the person that was threatening these girls. And then, uh, and so you could see that in New York City, they thought, they didn't think it was young men that he was arrested for. It looked like it was uh, girls. Although we know that once Tumbley made it to uh, New York City, he was only there for a day or so. And then he sneaked off to, uh, we found out where he sneaked off to was uh, uh, Western New York and then uh, stayed with his sister. And then so that report, and how curious, I have it in the book, that when he was there, that uh, there were two cases of women being threatened. (laughs) So I'm not saying that it, I mean, I I put that in there because uh, it was curious, but I did not push that that would have been tumbly. But but, uh, so it looks to me like a little child had knowledge pre-Balone of something. But post-Balone, he was absolutely wrong. He thought that tumbly died somewhere or whatever. But what that shows me is two things. One is, makes me more convinced that 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 dossier was not in special branch and one of the questions would be if if it's true that um, Tumbley made it to Havre and got to New York City little child should certainly have known because 1884 is when superintendent uh, Burns made the comment that anytime that there is a, uh, a prisoner that crosses from England over to the United States especially because of the dynamiters that they're in cable contact uh, to uh, to keep an eye on this person. And that's exactly, you know, Burns said that he knew Tumbley was coming a week prior. 
So why didn't Little Child know? The answer was there were two people in charge of Special Branch. It wasn't just Little Child. It was also Anderson. And when you look at the Old Bailey report, Little Child was knee-deep in these feigning issues in 1888. Little Child was involved with that kind of... Uh, that infer that kind of stuff. Even uh, when you look at the Old Bailey report, that they mention uh, Chief Inspector Littlechild in, I think, as a, a Pigot. You can see Anderson wanting Littlechild still being involved with it because we had all that Parnell issue still involved, and so you know Anderson that was a seriously important thing. So it was Anderson that took the charge of Tumbledy, not Littlechild. So Littlechild, in Littlechild's uh, um, his memoirs. When Little Child talks, he talks about this time frame. It's all about the Fanian issues. And he talks about that uh, what he remembered was that every Sunday morning is when they had their meetings uh, with uh, all the top officials. And so in Sunday morning, you could see that that's where Little Child was in the know because he was part of this, because Anderson was both in charge of the Whitechapel murders and the special branch, that he would have known about... Uh, Tumbledy when he was arrested, all that material, but once uh, the um, they left Balone, you could see that Little Child, or Little Child was no longer involved, but at that time he was quite convinced that he was a very likely suspect. Although, uh, so that's kind of the, where I see it was more, it was Anderson that was involved, and especially here we have Anderson uh, recontacting, this was November 22nd, he contacted the Brooklyn chief of police, asking for all information, not just uh, um, handwriting samples, but all information on Tumbledy in the, with respect to the Whitechapel murders. And that's what the report shows. That was that the superintendent Campbell of Brooklyn made a comment. But he also contacted uh, the San Francisco's chief of police, or they were in dialogue. I mean, we have uh, conflicting reports that who contacted whom, but... In case of Brooklyn, it clearly states that it was uh, Anderson that contacted uh, Campbell in November 22nd, on November 22nd, right at the very time that um, it was like probably November 23rd is when they were he was first seen in Boulogne. So the next day is when Scotland Yard noticed that he was in Boulogne. So, but November 22nd, they were still collecting information on this Tumbledee while they were waiting for a gross indecency case. They, they were collecting information on the Whitechapel case with Tumbledee. So, uh, it, to me, it just uh, shows that Anderson, here it is now, Tumbledee's sneaked out of the country, quite embarrassing. So, the, the question uh, one person had was that if there was a scout, uh, uh, there were a couple uh, reports of, of a, uh, you know, let's say an English detective in New York City. One was, you know, like that, I was talking about the, the, the New York, the New Orleans Daily Picune said that there were two New York detectives and a London detective waiting for Tumbley when he landed. And then, uh, then you know, we had the, uh, the New York World Report of, um, of, you know, they were followed, they followed, so we had reporters and police following Tumbley out of, you know, the uh, New York City Harbor and went to that, uh, that woman's hotel or room 
but he first tried to open up a different door. So it looks like he wasn't specifically going for that room, but that was the only one available open at the time. But he got in there. And so, of course, uh, then you've got the New York World Reporter at the same day, on the same day, reported with a New York Herald reporter about this, uh, you know, this person that had how the New York World Reporter said it had made an elaborate attempt at concealment. And he said he was a typical English detective. So the argument is, was that the same detective that the reporters from the New York Daily Picune talked about? Uh, uh, was it maybe uh, a private detective? Uh, but it was definitely somebody. And it was, uh, and it was, uh, they said English detective. And the reason why I have made comments about traveling across the United States is because of the, the numerous ports, even here, uh, the uh, when... Uh, the reporter uh, talked to the bartender, and the bartender said that that he wanted to know this feller named Tumblety, and he was an English detective. Came over to get the chap that did it. So now, if you are a uh, a private detective trying to get your sureties back, you wouldn't be coming over to get the chap that did it. You'd be coming over to get your money. But then, at the same day, they're in the New York Herald. Uh, that this other reporter said that he found um, that uh, the he talked about the bartenders plural about McKenna in McKenna saloon and that uh, um, that particular reporter made the comment that this 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 person this uh, strange person did not know much about New York so to me that sounds like there's a person that hasn't been hanging out in New York City for you know, uh, quite uh, for a long period of time because he's looks kind of uncomfortable there and he made the comment that he's looking for the chap that did it so then in the Cincinnati Enquirer on December 14th in police headquarters they said that uh, they're about talking about English officials in New York City running this investigation and that they were in Cincinnati looking for information so and, and um, so all of that data you would say that uh, they were still concerned and now but within a day or two, that's when Tumbley had sneaked out and gone to Western New York. And so then they, they lost him. So the question was, why would you, uh, what could a, an English detective do or a uh, Scotlander detective? He doesn't have the authority to arrest Tumbley, but it would be the same reason why they are, they filed him in England. They filed him in France. It's not, they wouldn't arrest him. What they were looking for was they were still doing the investigation. And if they had anything on Tumblety at all, we don't know how much they had because we don't have the records. They might have been close with something, or they were, you know, just like the reports were saying uh, when uh, the report about Superintendent, um, the office of Superintendent Campbell said that they were looking for all information on Tumblety uh, and part of this investigation. If they found anything damning, then they could easily have had the, the New York City detectives arrest him now because it's no longer a, a misdemeanor case. If they officially charge him with some kind of, uh, um, let's say, felony, that now that would be extraditable, that they are there to escort him back. And so, um, so you, there would be uh, reason for that this would happen. Again, it's not that I'm guessing. I'm looking at these, you know, these four articles... Uh, newspaper articles that say it and it's not like did they all lie or uh, so so to me and it also explains why little child did not would not have known about that because he was not involved with it it was Anderson that was involved with it 
and then um, so in, in your book you uh, bring up uh, a few other examples of the the phrase English detective pretty much being used interchangeably with Scotland Yard official to right. differentiate it from a private detective right now you covered a lot of ground just then so I want to go back and recap a couple things um, when Greaves first published his article on November 17th the Cumblety one with the K yeah. right it was under the context of people who had been arrested for suspicion that week the, the preceding week so mm -hmm. from the 10th let's say through the 17th or something like that um because he refers to it seem seemingly it refers to Tumblety as being lumped in with what uh greaves had said a score of men being right. being arrested this week on suspicion but right. he also then goes on to say the right man still roams at large Right. So he was giving examples of people who had been arrested for suspicion the previous week in uh, early November, um, but that had been released. Right. Uh, and then you have the article that came out after the double event in the first of around the first of October, October 4th. Describing the American man arrested on suspicion being a Whitechapel murderer wearing the slouch hat, seemingly giving the detectives um, the, or the police a, a hard time, being difficult, maybe not giving his name. They had to search the this American's slouch hat wearing person's lodgings in order to establish a, his identity. Whether that's tumble tea or not, we don't know. But if there is, if it is, then there's a month long gap between his arrest. At, let if we take his word for it, let's say he was he went down to Whitechapel to view the scene of probably the Stride murder, um, and he was arrested there early October. But then you have Greaves not commenting about tumble tea's arrest. For a until a month later, indicating that it had taken place just that week prior in early November, right? right so there's right. a little bit of confusion there. So maybe a different American was arrested in early October, and it's just a coincidence. But it sounds kind of like Tumblety to me, the early October one. Um, and so, so if he was arrested, let's say for the benefit of the doubt, in early October, and not in the after the Mary Kelly murder, then it seems that he would have been quickly released within the following day, according to the press reports, right? right. If he was right. the American arrested on, Octo in, in, um, on October 3rd, he was released on October 4th. Yeah. And then on November 7th, he's arrested for the gross indecency and indecent assault. Uh, or within close to November or sixth, sixth slash seventh, something like that. And then on the eighth, the following day, the day before the Kelly murder, he, it, along with his attorney, appear at Marlboro Street Police Court for his remand hearing. Yes. And the results of that remand hearing are unknown. And and um, that would have 
decided whether or not he would remain in jail until his committal hearing on the 14th or whether they would have granted him bail. And that's crucial if you believe Mary Kelly is a Ripper victim. Um, not knowing the results of that um, remand hearing, it, it, it you know, is, right. is, weighs heavily for or against Tumblety being Jack the Ripper. Um, but we do know on at the committal hearing on the 14th, uh, he was granted bail. Yes. And we have evidence, uh, not, I mean, the ev- not only because he fled, but um, because uh, he, we ha- he has documentation that he produced directing his bank to, to supply the funds. Right, yes. So that proves that on November 14th, he was granted bail. But there's no evidence whatsoever, uh, and Tumblety didn't supply any documentation that he was actually also able to receive funds, let's say, on November 8th for the remand hearing. And how long that would have even taken, you know, if he was granted bail on November 8th, it, it took him uh, on the fort on the 14th when we know he received bail it took him um, two days to to actually be released so if he was, so he was granted bail 300 pounds on the 14th he didn't come up with the money until the 16th okay and then he was released so if a similar situation happened on November 8th then he might not have been a- even released until, let's say, the tenth, and that would account for his couple days. He says. Okay, so let me uh, let me stop because I'm going to ex- go back to excludes a fr- him from being the murderer of Mary Kelly. So yeah. So uh, either so with- way, whether he was granted bail, that that in itself could present a problem with time because you know what I'm saying. So go ahead. Yeah. So let let me uh, let me go back to the first thing. Uh, one of the things that they talk about is. Uh, when uh, we found the family members made a comment that uh, this Maurice Fitzsimmons, uh, they knew that Maurice Fitzsimmons was uh, arrested for the Whitechapel murders. And so when, so we know that he had to have visited his niece in Bath after the first arrest that he was there. So when would that have been? You know, would he have, after November 19th, when he found out that he was going to be uh, you know, when he was getting the money and he was leaving, would he spend the time to visit uh, a uh, relative, or would he be spending the time trying to get uh, get out of the get out of the England? So, uh, my point there is that there was a report that uh, this being uh, it said that uh, his uh, arrest for gross and indec- or one of the rest being his third arrest. So there there is evidence that he was actually arrested yet another time, and so. What I would say suggests that two things. One is, uh, you know, like the the Albert Chambers. I'm still uh, I'm still thinking that that he's that so tumbly that that would have been his first arrest in the case. But uh, even the report says that that person was there, uh, released immediately. So tumbly may not even have known that Scotland Yard now is taking him seriously. But there could very well have been another arrest in that times um and then 
But then the other thing is, remember Tumblety always had. He was never without. Uh, how would he say? Uh, it was around. It was like a bunch of jewelry. And uh, at least it was hundreds of dollars of cash in one pocket. So that that first arrest, but two things. One is I was going to report that in the book, and then I was I was talked out of it because, you know, of the remand hearing. If there was a posting of bail in the November seventh re- remand hearing, that he would have had that money on his person because he was never without a lot of money. But I didn't put it in there because someone had told me that. Uh, on those bails, many times uh, the, it's not a, a sureties issue. So I, I actually left it out. Too bad I did. Uh, I mean, I still would have liked to have added that. Maybe the next one I'll add it. But but it, look at all the reports with Tumblety. He always had his jewelry and he always had his cash on his pocket. So you're saying well, that he, uh, if he was granted bail at the remand hearing on the 8th, he might have used all the cash that he had available on his person to get out at immediately if that was required and that's why he would then later after his arrest from his gross indecency be short of funds and 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 then oh you know uh a week later have to uh instruct his bank to wire the 260 and it, it explains why he had to do that because he always had money on him mm-hmm. so that kind of explains where his money went the first time right Okay. You know, that that's one of the key missing pieces of evidence in Tubblety is is what exactly uh, happened at the remand hearing. Maybe somewhere there exists, you know, uh, something that said, you know, he was able to pay it in full on the 8th. And and then would they have released him out immediately? They would have. Or, or oh, would have it have taken like an extra day or something? Well, I, you know, and one of the things that I point out is when you see uh, uh, my point is when he would have any kind of narcissistic rage would be you just got arrested for this. And uh, if there was any time that he would kind of retaliate, respond, it would be near that time. So it actually would, uh, um, it, knowing Tumbley's personality, if there, he did start another rage, since this would have been, if indeed he was the killer, he's already killed, that's the point where he would really go into rage. And then, uh, but, yes. So, but the other thing is, though, is, you know, this case is so old that it's surprising that we have the evidence that we do. And so it's only because of reports that, you know, he was released that we have that. So... So far, the only thing we have would be evidence is Tumbley himself when he was asked, how long were you in prison? When he was reported in the Civil War, he he recorded exactly how long he was in that old Capitol prison for three weeks. So in this case, he said a couple of days. So he did, you know, so tum- and, uh, one of the questions is, you know, I uh, to me... When I see Tumblety, when he wrote his 1889 autobiography, he did that within two months. You know, so that was January 30th. He was being interviewed, blaming actually uh, the police, the 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 detectives, the police for uh, thinking that it's an American with a slouch hat. But at, within a week of that uh, interview, 
he published his next autobiography, and the really the only difference between the 1889 autobiography and the 1872 is that he has a chapter of vindication, and he's complaining about the New York papers or the U.S. papers. And that, when you read it, it's exactly because of the Ripper murders is what he's complaining about. Yeah, maybe so, he was uh, more inclined to um, complain about, like, you had mentioned um, the when he was going under the name Maurice Fitzsimmons um, to his family members there in England, um, they, they he had told them that he was arrested for the Whitechapel murders. Uh, now, if that had occurred after his arrest for gross indecency, like as he was fleeing and he went to visit them, then you can see um, it, it be a part of a pattern of him um, almost being being glad that he could say that he was arrested for the Whitechapel murders uh, it, in an attempt to sweep under the rug the whole arrest for the gross indecency charges, which he would have been more embarrassed about. It's almost like he 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 felt um, he could consider himself lucky that he had this other arrest, more, more nor most notorious that he was innocent of, that he could complain about the Whitechapel murders, as opposed to this really embarrassing gross indecency and decent assault arrest that he was in fact guilty of. Well, you know, two things. One is one pull, thing though he's is he's pulling the curtain over um, the real right, but, the real reasons behind. His well, arrest. if you look at that, if you look at his autobiography that he that he published within uh, about a month of that, when he complains about the treatment, he does he mentions nothing about London. I mean, if he was kind of wanting to push them away, he would have made a comment about that. And, uh, and he, he made not, no mention at all. And the other thing was, is when that New York World Reporter was reporting in January of 1889, uh, people were wondering why he didn't make a, uh, he was trying to maybe shy away from his gross indecency arrest. Remember, nobody knew it was gross indecency until the 1990s. When that reporter was reporting on this, that reporter did not know that he was arrested for gross indecency that he was only arrested for this Maiden Tribute Act, so which would con conform to Jack the Ripper because it's girls. So the interest that journalists had would have had nothing to do with the gross indecency. It would have had everything to do with that uh, Jack the Ripper. That's why he wanted to, uh, that. So again, so to me, Tumbley was not hiding the fact, he was not hiding the fact that he had this gross indecency thing because nobody knew it. Um, I want to also uh, talk about the whole twelve detectives. Oh yeah, being um, although this this was not a question submitted by a listener, I should point out um, it's it's something that I that that's in your book, and and I follow the casebook message boards as we all know. So um, in your book, you state that extra constables were summoned to search the train stations and, and, and inspect uh, American travelers' luggage in an attempt right. to um, find evidence against Tumblety, is what you suggest. But from the correspondence that was posted on Casebook by Prowse and um, Monroe and folks like that, um, 
the extra constables that were uh, requested seemed to have been intended for passengers coming from America to Liverpool and then right. proceeding to London in an right. attempt to search for like explosives. Right. Um, as opposed to Tubalty, who was whichever way he was going, was going in the opposite direction. So to me, there didn't seem to be any any um, indication that they were requesting to search Americans' baggage uh, outgoing. They were concerned with searching American passengers' baggage incoming. Right. Uh, so could you, would you like to address that one for us? Yeah, sure. The uh, Now... Um, what I uh, reported on was uh, from Andrew Cook's book, uh, with the uh, and and Andrew Cook made a comment and mentioned uh, about this report around November twentieth, eighteen eighty eight, of us of assigning these constables. Now, you're exactly right, and when you look at uh, the the reports on Casebook, that there are a ton of them now. I mean, multiple pages worth. That those twelve constables were absolutely assigned for what you said, but that was for the dates between the first of March, eighteen eighty nine, and February twenty eighth, eighteen ninety. That's not what Andrew Cook was. His his Andrew Cook's concern was when you read that November twenty eighteen eighty eight report. It says that uh, those additional constables says in that particular report it states that. Uh, this year-long reassignment, it doesn't say year-long, but it was basically that date, he says, does not take into account the 12 police constables who will be required for duty at Houston Station and St. Pancras. So it says it does not take into account the that, meaning the report about the November 20th, this right here is suggesting that they will be using some before those dates, but all those correspondences between Home Office and Scotland Yard is for the the enduring or the year-long event, which is fine. But that's not what Andrew Cook was concerned about. He said that it, the ones that was not taken into account, he was thinking that, again, this is November 20th, so uh, that would have been that uh, it suggests that there were some people there before and so well the, the the um the correspondence that as far as i can tell that initially started uh, the request for the inspection of americans luggage for right. explosives was in the spring of 1888 so it would have right. been even months prior to the whitechapel right. murders even commencing not um, now whether it went on the eighty nine and ninety, I don't know. So, no, no, so are, what, are you was, saying that there 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 was two separate requests that that that? No, I'm saying there was there's only one request. All those requests are for the March eighteen eighty nine and eighteen ninety, which is exactly what all that corresponds was. But Andrew Cook's comments was the the part where it says it does not take into account that. What he's talking about is that. Um, the uh, there was something happening that does not take into account that <clears throat> who who will be required for the the next year. So he was said that was curious, and so that's what I said was uh, I said that kind of basically the same thing was Andrew Cook is that now by the way uh, when I was making the comment about 
Now, explain to me again. I'm kind of confused. What What does... Uh, I don't have Andrew's book in front of me. What... Uh, and I don't oh, even I, know. I, it's I, been years since I spoke to him. Yeah, so... What does he exactly uh, say? It's a home office. Uh, apparently, it's 144-222-49500M. That particular one talks about... Uh, uh, that report there says does not take into account the 12 PCs. The 12 PCs who will be required for next year. So all the correspondence before, in the 18, or before the Ripper murders and all that focuses on they need funding for a year-long 12 constables. So that would not have nothing to do with uh, Francis Tumbley. But in this case, it it hints that when it says it does not take into account those, that means that uh, that home office and them have knowledge of having some constables at the police, at these stations. And that uh, now the, the, the counter to that was that when he said this, uh, the in the there was a November 23rd Board of Customs to the Secretary of State approval talking about the new arrangements still to be worked out. So uh, when it says still to be worked out, that must not mean that there were some constables that were, you know, already by November 20th at those stations, but there were some constables that were at the stations maybe be between there and uh, the beginning of when they needed that year-long funding. So my point was, is when I read that, was that there was this suspicious little statement about it does not take into account those. So there must be some constables that are there uh, around that time. Were they for uh, Francis Tumbley? Well, uh, they might not be. That's why it was only a side comment saying, curiously, this was going on at the same time. So, I, and, I and regardless of you know what what they attempted to do, um, hit, your book indicates that by traveling to visit his relatives in Bath, he was probably uh, dropping off um, a lot of his luggage. Um, and, and and surgical knives. <laughs> yeah. So so whether they deployed extra constables to search for Tumblety's belongings or not, um, he was able to uh, circumvent that whole effort anyway um, by possibly depositing them with his relatives. And you know he wasn't. They didn't catch him with anything anyway. Um, yeah. So it, it's all kind of. Um, yeah, and, and again, that, moot, that particular comment, that particular spot right there, I could have completely eliminated uh, the discussion with Andrew Cook's uh, comment about the 12 constables, and it would have bear no, no uh, impact upon um, Little Child make, uh, you know, having knowledge of uh, Tumblety making it to Boulogne and have you know, this complete issue. So that was just one more thing that, how curious that Andrew Cook talked about that, so I wanted to add that. Okay. Okay, and um, is there anything else uh, that you uh, think we should uh, touch on that's in your new book that um, we haven't talked on a previous podcast or covered here, Mike? Uh, yeah, there's a couple things. One of them is is uh, some of the interest in Tumblety would be, uh, or lack of interest in the past um, one would be that he's too old that he was uh, too big so that he would kind of like stick out like a sore thumb 
The uh, another one would be that he doesn't fit the eyewitness testimonies, and and so my point that I wrote in there uh, was that with the fitting of the eyewitness testimonies, one of the things is that um, when I I talk about actually my very first book is talking about everybody, all humans have uh, um, basically have uh, a bias because when new inf- uh, uh, for, uh, cognitive neuroscientist uh, Dr. Damasio said that when new information comes in a brain, it attaches to an emotion, and that emotion tr- takes it to somewhere. If it's something that you don't like, it's going to go to the negative part of the uh, your, uh, uh, section, and then if it's something you enjoy, it's going to go to the positive. So what happens is we have this thing called confirmation bias, where I favor Tumbledee, so any kind of evidence that supports Tumbledee, I'm going to emphasize. Anything that de-emphasize, and it doesn't, I'm, uh, doesn't, I'm going to de-emphasize. So I am uh, a person that's going to, uh, so the that's why some people will say I don't like to read suspect books because they're going to try to they're biased already, but I purposely try not to do that, and that's why I fill it with the uh, data. But it's also the reason why we have like a peer review process, kind of like Rippercats, what we're doing here, and also when we have uh, you know uh, let's say uh, uh, a book reviews from let's say Paul Begg, who's a established, well established person. But uh, with uh, but so with the case of uh, eyewitness testimony that I might be biased since I'm just looking at anybody that looks like Tumbledee. Although you know we had one case, others don't. But what I wanted to talk about with the um, the bias that happens with eyewitness testimony is first of all that you know no one did see the actual murder, so we just know of people that are you know uh, seen you know someone with the the prostitute just before just after but um there there was this uh, innocence project um in um the school of law at yeshiva university and they, they looked at 239 cases where the the determining factor of conviction was eyewitness testimony and 73 percent were overturned because of dna evidence Seventy-three percent, and it kind of shows you that people uh, that eyewitness testimony is questionable. And even when you hear like Trevor Merrick makes uh, comments about you, uh, you can't trust the eyewitness testimony, especially the person looking. It wasn't the fact that that person was thinking, "I'm looking for Jack the Ripper." Could this be Jack the Ripper? They were doing their own thing, and so now they're just kind of recalling something. So, and uh, the scout yard officials back then. They didn't have much to go on. One was I, but they did have eyewitness testimony, and if they found out that that, how, um, you know, we have eyewitness testimony is quite sketchy, is very difficult. So to me, I push that that eyewitness testimony. It could still have been tumbly in one or two of the cases, but the person uh, didn't look at them, or they were looking at the wrong woman and the wrong person. So. Uh, I want to kind of uh, point that across, and, that. and then the the older age one is what um, that it is true that let's say most serial killers are in their 30s or so, but as I said before, that in this case with Dr. Brent Turvey, it's a different kind of killer. That it's not a sadosexual killer. That there's a sexual impulse where you have a strong sexual drive in your 20s and 30s. For if if Tumbley was the killer in his 50s makes more sense because he's in feeling he's in constant dread of sudden death and he's blaming these women so 
and it would be the time that he would have done it. It would be in his late 60s. So, but I, uh, uh, so in the case that he's uh, really tall, that he was tall, but he was now when they say the average height is five foot seven, that's just an average. That there are a bunch of tall, there are taller people than Tumblety, but he's on the taller end. So he, he w- it wouldn't be like the, he stuck out like a sore thumb, like he was seven foot tall. And also, he said that he he dressed, uh, you know, when he was in the slums, he would dress for the occasion. And, and also that the uh, Whitechapel district was quite dark. So that to me is something that uh, probably would not be too. It might be true, but you wouldn't reject uh, a suspect. So that's my point on ears, even though with these arguments, it wouldn't be a case of rejecting uh, any suspect just because of uh, the suspect eyewitness doesn't match testimony or uh, doesn't match the physical description or patterns like this, that it's still important, but you shouldn't reject anybody. Yeah, and with Tumble Tea, you're still even to this day getting uh, commenters um, saying expecting him to be wearing like a military outfit and a prussian hat uh a prussian helmet walking around white you know the right that um that's an issue that that he has that i uh, i'm uh, unfortunately under the impression that that's always going to stick with him is that you're always going to have a a segment of uh, people interested in the ripper case who see one photograph supposedly of Tumble Tea or one uh, or an illustration done of him um, from the 1860s or 1870s and think, uh, oh, that's what he looked like uh, in in the autumn of 1888. Right. As if he right. only had one set of clothes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so that that's an issue. But one of the things I was thinking when, we, when I was reading your book about the November, uh, early November arrest and his comments about being down to Whitechapel is that I was wondering if maybe they could have suspected him of um, uh, of specifically being involved in the Stride murder um, mm-hmm. outside because we always hear like uh, from uh, pe- people like Neil Bell and folks like that that Every murder in, you know, we look at it as a Whitechapel murder series, but mm-hmm. every murder uh, was investigated on its own in isolation. Right. Uh, and, um, and so I always wondered if, well, maybe Tumble Tea was picked up because he resembled like a pipe man or right. who, who they who there is some indication that they were able to identify uh, and get a statement from. So. So I always kind of think, well, maybe um, Tumble Tea was picked. Of course, you completely disagree with me, but I always I think that well, maybe it's a possibility that you know him, if it was the stride scene that he did go and visit uh, the day after the murder, maybe he was misidentified as being involved in the um, incident on Burner Street. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, and that's why he was quickly uh, exonerated or something. So anyway, that's just a possibility. Oh, and speaking of that quickly exonerated one is, uh, you know, there is a, an, uh, a actually good argument. Uh, actually, uh, Ed Stowe and I have been uh, conversing back and forth. And there, one of the arguments in the past was that if you, you can read that November 17th report and, uh, you know, with the Cumbledy report, 
and see that base it may have been they initially when they arrest him on suspicion then once proved innocent then they just went for gross indecency and so there was he was never suspected so you know let's say ignore all the case with uh, the information about uh, him leaving the other material but one of the interesting things about where that um, that came from really was in New the next day the New York Times it said that uh, it reported that once proved innocent of the Whitechapel case, then they went after him for gross indecency. It didn't say gross indecency, but, you know, the Babylon thing. That report of uh, the New York Times was the New York Times reporter was in the uh, the uh, detective's office in New York City, and there were uh, three other New York uh, papers there, too. The other papers did not say once proved innocent. They just kind of reported what, what uh, Inspector Superintendent Burns was talking about. Superintendent Burns was trying to say that don't worry about Tumble, he's likely not the murderer anyway, but we're going to keep an eye on him. And so so one of the papers reported that they interpreted that as once proved innocent, but the other papers didn't. But interesting about the New York Times that said once proved innocent, four days later in their uh, their next newspaper, they write, uh, uh, Tumble, who at present is under arrest on suspicion of the Whitechapel murders. They contradict what they just talked about. So that uh, that interpretation kind of doesn't fat, uh, fit with the actual report that says that anymore. And then also with the kind of the wealth of evidence with what we just us talked about. Yeah. And uh, before we go, um, uh, you had mentioned uh, peer, the peer review process earlier. And yeah. uh, Bernard Boley submitted a question about just that. So um, I'll let you kind of repeat yourself, but I'll read you Bernard's question. As an author working on the Tumblety Ripper theory, you most likely went through a sort of peer review process. Could you give us your comments on the process you relied upon, such as the parameters it used? Did it meet your expectations? Any suggestions in terms of best peer review approach nonfiction authors should hope for? Uh, it's actually a really good question because in our world, I'm going to say the ripperologist, some people don't like that term, but I'm going to use that. In ripperology, um, we we have an issue is we don't have a set peer review process like in my other world where there's an actual peer review process where before you can uh, put your, your, your research into their journal, it goes through a, a panel and they look for bias and as I said humans are naturally biased especially confirmation bias and so they're looking for this and so if they're if they find any opinion any uh, let's say uh, any kind of uh, fallacious arguments let's say kind of like the straw man kind of arguments or red herrings they're gonna reject it and so uh, my paleontology professor that we were working on our paper the first time it was rejected because there was a phrase in there that looked like it was opinionated. So we couldn't, we had to support it or delete that before it goes in, before it gets published. Well, we don't have that that uh, luxury, but we do have some things that are quite close. One is what we're doing right now, Rippercast, I think is a uh, an excellent way to discuss this. Also, I think uh, with uh, uh, book reviews like from somebody like Paul Begg would be and then um, but also we have ripperologists and you found something it was kind of cool that my 2013 article that was in the ripperologist on the uh, Chamber of Horrors wax museum 
it made it into the uh, uh, there was an article in uh, uh, that journal called Humanities, and they heavily cited my report my uh, my my article. And so what's nice is that was the other thing is that they look at citations to make sure that they match properly. So you don't get, let's say, a citation from a, um, uh, a disreputable location. To me, that shows, although I'm excited about it because it was my report, but it was from ripperologists. So that just gained credibility for ripperologists for uh, that it was reviewed by the scholar, scholarly review. So that was kind of neat. But the problem with there's... Uh, when we have these forums, you'll see that a lot of the scientific community, they don't have forums like we try to do. Uh, but let's say there are forums, let's say even for the creation evolution debate, there's forums for even Bigfoot, all this kind of stuff. And the, the danger of forums, which is I think Casebook and JTR forums, do a, they do a great job at uh, uh, making sure that it doesn't happen. But the problem is, is there's two different things. There's a thing called debate where, let's say in law, you have the adversarial system of justice. Your attorney is not looking for truth. Your attorney is looking to win. Their attorney is looking to win. The truth comes out in the adversarial system of justice by the jurors and the judge. Well, when we have a uh, debating situation, if you are an excellent debater, you have an advantage. And then, so the problem is, is uh, when you don't have a, a proper peer review, is uh, nice, uh, excellent, uh, let's say a, a very crafty argument can be added in, and um, it's 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 not based on, uh, let's say the uh, in, there's opinion in it, or one of the things that we always get, uh, you can see, is uh, emotional, and then so, and I'm I'm guilty of that as my, myself, where. You know, you see something attacking, and so then you kind of go after them, and like this, and that happens, and uh, it gets dragged on for a long time. So we we have that problem in in our community, but luckily that you know, let's say uh, we can kind of, uh, it still works. There's still an element that works, and you can see the evidence of that, uh, the at working because of uh, even on uh, the the reports that come like. Like uh, you know, the ripperologist was taken credible at the time, right. so, so, uh, so for what I do is my very first book was called "Searching for Truth with a Broken Flashlight," and it was on the evolution creation debate. And what it was is in the eight in the 1980s they had these debates, and a lot of people were trying to say that the creation scientists dominated the scientists, but that's not at all what it was. When you look at uh, you look at them and listen to them, it was crafty arguments that they, let's say they would argue uh, uh, let's say they would have a, a chemist come and argue well a chemist has no idea about paleontology so all the, the the attacks were paleontology which the chemist had no idea what was going on so you have all these little tricks you know these kind of lawyers tricks to kind of win so the the goal is to try to avoid that and then uh, so for me personally I try to avoid that and I, because I, I know full well I am a human and I have bias, but, you know, there's there's limits, and then so that's that's so I think it's just being consciously aware of that, that you continue with that. So, uh, but it's really why I, you publish. Once you publish, now you know your heart and soul is in that book, so anybody can go and rip it apart as they want, which is absolutely appropriate. But then, uh, but that's kind of part of the business. 
Well, I want to thank you, my colleague, for choosing Rippercast as your first appearance. I understand that you'll be doing other podcasts for publicity for your book, and I appreciate you wanting to come on here first. So thanks for that. And oh, Mike, thank you. Mike's uh, new book is Jack the Ripper Suspect, Dr. Francis Tumblety, and is published by Sunbury Press and available through their website and, of course, on Amazon. It was uh, nice talking to you again, Mike. And well, and I wish you the best of luck with your book. And come on Thanks. when come on when the the next one is is published. Great, I, I look forward to that too. <laughs> Thank you. All right, thanks, Mike.